Take a copy of God's Word with you and open to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. We'll be reading from verses 1 through 4 in just a moment. December also means we're going to shake up the preaching calendar just slightly. So we'll be in Colossians this week and then next week, but then the 17th, the 24th, and then the evening of the 24th, we'll do something different focused on the incarnation and what Jesus came to do. I'll share a little bit about my plans for that next week. Today's text is the first passage of Scripture I ever studied. First passage of Scripture I ever meditated on. It was a camping trip in Yosemite Valley in 1995, and my group was assigned to read and reflect and to share with the rest of the group about about this passage. It's the first passage I ever explained. In this passage, I found a profound truth about Christ for profound change in life. And I pray that you'll see it there too. Let's read together Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Well, speaking of December, I remember another December morning about 10 years ago. And I mentioned the number of years so to distance myself from that former person. I walked out of our apartment off Apple Rock Drive and Winghaven Apartments in O'Fallon, Missouri, where we lived for several years, where I was in youth ministry, to get in my car and head to the church, but there would be no heading to the church. The car would not start. It worked fine when I left it. It would not start now. It was cold. I imagined it was the battery. So I tried to jump the car. And I don't remember if it's that occasion when I actually, you know, melted my, uh, my, uh, the little plastic things in front of your headlights because I did it wrong, but I figured that out by now. And I did try to jump the car and that didn't work. Uh, so I figured the battery's just, the battery's just not, not working. So I replaced the battery. That didn't work. So I called a, called a tow guy who came. He had his colleague in the, the other seat. The guy gets out. And uh, I don't I remember how he inspected the car, but he, he kind of got close to me and he gave me the news. He said, you're out of gas. <laughs> so I had, I had driven that car right into the spot, took the key out. And unless someone sucked the gas out of my car overnight, I was good and out of gas. And that might scare all you preppers out there because sometimes I'll drive around on E for a little while. I don't know what that means about me. Um, I'm selectively... A planner. So I was out of gas, and he whispered that so his colleague, I imagine, wouldn't hear. It's not good business to show up to tow a car and then fix the problem with a word like that. Well, I knew that morning that I needed to power my vehicle, and I needed power for my vehicle. There are places I wanted to go, and there were things that I desired to do. But I didn't know the kind of power, I didn't know the kind of power that I needed. Well, in Colossians chapter 1, as you will recall, Paul prayed and he said, May you be strengthened with all power 
according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. He said he strove with all his energy for his hearers, that he prayed for them, and he strove and toiled in prayer for them. We all know we need power for the Christian life. We have have places that we want to go, and we have things that we want to do. I have things we don't want to do that we find ourselves doing, but we don't always know what kind of power, what kind of power we need. Well, today we come to a crucial passage, and I pray that you'll find it a crucial passage. You know, maybe you've found yourself spinning your wheels or not able to turn the engine over, and you're wondering if Christianity or the Bible works. Friend, it works key is to know where the power is and to go to God for the power that he gives. A crucial passage this morning. And your shepherding group leaders, by the way, will like this one better than the last few weeks. (laughs) Um, Paul in chapter three gave us some tricky, touchy, even close close to our nerves, anywhere God's people gather, warnings and confrontations like we've had from chapter two, excuse me, uh, come close. But this passage here, this passage here is brighter. It's more positive. It's, it's happier. It's more of a delight to our, our ears, but it's no less important and it's no less potent. Today's passage offers us a critical doctrine, a paradigm, we could say, a hot energy nugget, which is the power center for the Christian life. You can't truly touch it. You can't truly touch this. You can't truly get this and not be changed. Today's passage sweeps the whole of Jesus' saving work in such short verses. His, His death, his resurrection, his present reign, his return. And at the same time, it sweeps across the whole scope of all that is involved in every thought you and I think and every move you and I make as those who belong to him. It is a passage about how the Christian life goes, about who we are and how this thing works. As we'll see, you are who you are if you're in Christ because of who Christ is. And you do what you do in as much as you do it to the glory of God because of what Christ has done, because of what he's doing right now as we sit here, and because of what he promises surely to do to us and in us. His is a full work, an all-encompassing Savior for an all-encompassing salvation, a Savior sufficient to save us to sustain us and keep us and to complete us in his time. He'll finish what he started and all of that is here. Well, what is this important and potent doctrine that we'll encounter in this passage? There are two ways that we are wrongly often tempted to power the Christian life. Reflect on this for just a moment. And cars are fun, so we'll stick with the car imagery for now. There's what we could call the Jesus jumpstart approach. Jesus uh, gets you going and the gospel gets you in, into the club, into the church, and you're on your own from there. We'll see you when you die. Good luck. Work hard 
on your way. This way, the Jesus jumpstart approach may be too wary of speaking about grace, and so it emphasizes the responsibility of the Christian, which is not an unbiblical emphasis. Jesus himself demanded obedience, and obedience is for every Christian an effort, something we toil for in ourselves and for one another. Jesus, the jump starter. Then there's Jesus, take the wheel. Just let him take over. There are different expressions of this one, but in effect, it's an auto, it speaks in autopilot terms, wary of talk of too much human effort. Life change is a kind of automatic, effortless endeavor, or at least effort is supposed to undermine, effort is supposed that it undermines the true cause and source of change, which is grace. One emphasizes human responsibility and our obligation, and the other emphasizes the great grace of God, which enables, of course, all Christian obedience and change. And when we hear one of these in our heads or on someone's lips, we might be tempted to fix it or to compensate it by adding a little more of the next thing. So if we hear too much accent on responsibility, we want to, we want to correct it with more grace. If we hear too much grace, we want to correct it with responsibility. And there's something to that. But both are missing in their their wider edges, both are missing a basic reality that holds both together at the same time. The doctrine introduced to us in this passage, which is the doctrine, as it's been called, of union with Christ. The doctrine of union with Christ. We're going to explore this a bit this morning as we go. And let me warn you, this may not be a simple valve replacement or like jumping the battery or replacing the battery. Or tightening a screw, it might be, but it might be a transplant of a kind. A new thing won't fit in the same spot the old thing went in. Gas and battery and solar and wind power are different kinds of things. This might entail for you a deepening in a reality you have embraced. It might entail for you a paradigm shift altogether in how you conceive of your Christian life. But take that as comforting. Because if you have been spinning your wheels, if you have been out on a cold December morning in the difficult Christian life, a Christian life that requires endurance and patience with joy and for which Paul struggles, a Christian life which is hard, if you have been out in the cold feeling like it doesn't work and trying the same thing over and over again, perhaps this morning, perhaps this morning, the sky will open up to you. And you'll discover the true source of, of power. That's no, that's no indication that life change is ever a matter of immediate change. Well, it can be. But it is an indication that if you haven't seen this before, there is something here for you to see. A crucial doctrine, union with Christ. We'll explore some of that more in a bit. For now, two steps in our sermon. For two things that we need to get deep down. First, a new direction, and second, a new identity. Or we could say, a new direction rooted in a new identity. Let's start with the first. A new identity, verses 1 through 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, excuse me, first a new direction. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Seek 
and set your mind on things above, not things below. Things to seek and thoughts to think. These commands are the first of their kind in this book as we've been listening. Let's do what my pet turtle does and stick our heads above the water and look around. A little periscope action to see where we're at in the book. Chapter 1 through chapter 2 verse 5 is what we could call a long greeting. Paul has prayed for endurance for his readers and he has rejoiced over their faith, their hope, and their love. And he has prayed for their full assurance in Christ in order that they might be filled with him. Christ, the preeminent one, the one who is reconciling all things to himself through his blood, the one in whom are hidden all spiritual treasures. Then in verses two, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we have a header, if you will, for the entire rest of the book, the body of the letter. It reads this way, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, pointing backward to everything he said, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And the rest of chapter 2 was defensive. Don't let anyone take you captive by empty philosophies, telling you that you don't have what you need. Christ has come and he is yours. Don't let anyone judge you on account of their mishandling of the Old Testament. Don't let anyone disqualify you on account of not having certain special spiritual experiences or, or visions. And don't let anyone regulate your life as though regulations in addition to what God has said are the sum and substance of the Christian life. You are not a, a dog to be incentivized into very particular behaviors as though by the time you're you're now doing exactly what you should. That's all there is to it. And you're not a robot to be, to be programmed and to be taught exactly what moves to make as though that's what the Lord is really, really after. No. Then in chapter 3, he goes constructive. And that's where we're at now, a vision of how the Christian life really works. He'll say, put off these attitudes and behaviors and approaches to life and put put on these things here we get commands in chapter 3 we get a description of the way we live and the way we don't live down to our specific roles as husbands and wives and and as parents and as as children it gets earthy before chapter 3 is out and that's where we're headed the corrective to the regulations people is not to overcorrect by deemphasizing obedience but to emphasize exacting deep actual heart obedience to what God actually did say in all of that and to power that obedience this is key and to power that obedience with exactly what God has given to power it so that he might get the glory but before we get specific in those terms about how to live and how not to live which is where the chapter is going we have today's passage and we have a command to seek and a command to set our minds how different this is than how we're used to thinking on our own, apart from God's help. It's different. It's below the surface. It's different from the false teachers with their rule-governing 
from the outside, which tempts us and which we're tempted into. It's by contrast, it's humanizing. We're not robots. We're not mere dogs. Our external presentation and moves are not the substance of our life. So it's below the surface, and it's, it's patient. It's different from our microwave vision-seeking, experience-seeking, shortcut approaches to maturity. It's about a search. It's about a mindset. It's about setting your mind on things. Mind, your imagination. What goes on in your mind is really, really, really important and basic to what you do with your life. What you set your mind to, what you set your thoughts on, the thoughts that you have about God and yourself and people and the world and the events in your life and in your day. One commentator put it well. He wants their moral imagination to be controlled by divine reality. Before he gets to what you do and don't do as a Christian, he gets to what you seek and what you see and what you think. And if this book was a class on Christian ethics, then it doesn't start with how we live. It starts with what we seek and that to which we set our minds. It's also obvious. It makes sense. When I got in my car this morning, I I aimed it down the road and I I sought out uh, the door to the church. And I ended up there because I decided to seek there. And that powered and controlled my movements of the wheel and of the, the brake and of the the gas pedal and of the gas pedal and of the gas pedal. No, I didn't drive that fast. But it was early in the morning. So it's like this with all things. We seek things and that directs our lives. We've heard this seeking language before from Jesus. Remember this? Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's the first matter. It's a matter of heart seeking about what we want and our desires and our longings. And if we want to stop the indulgence of the flesh, we need something more powerful than the flesh. We need something with a greater pull on our hearts and our minds and our affections and our desires than the flesh. Like a soul compass, we need our right direction. Soul compass, by the way, would be a great name for a 90s Christian band, it occurred to me. Soul compass. It's obvious. It's a search. Of course. What we're searching for directs where we go and how we, how we live. This is what's underneath our lives. It's also hard. I mean, try to change your desires. You like one kind of food and not another? Try to make yourself flip those. Desires are a terribly mysterious thing. How we end up with them. And the heart of man is deceitfully wicked. And it's sick. And we find in ourselves desires we wish weren't there. We desire things we don't desire to desire. You know this. I know this. And what we think. And the thoughts that pop into our head. And the thoughts that we set our mind to. It's not like we sit down with a list of things we're going to think about in the morning. I mean, some days I get in the shower and this thought pops into my head and then this thought pops into my head and this conversation I had and that conversation I had and I start thinking about the future or this thing over here and what did that mean and like I got five things rolling around in my head and I can't, can't, can't keep this up and I didn't put them there they just arrived 
This is, we're talking deep stuff at the level of who you, who you are at a very, very basic, basic level. Very basic level. It's hard. But it's also what he's giving us, this seeking and setting our mind business. is also fairly simple in a way. We think, should I go left or should I go right? But he says, it's up or down. Our primary and our prior, prior preoccupation is with what's above over what's below. Can you see it? Can you, is it something that you can see? Well, then it's not something to set your life on. Is it something you can handle? Is it something you can hold? Is it something you can possess materially? Oh, the material world is a gift from God and every dimension of our earthly life is. But if you can see it, it's not what you base your life on. It's not the most basic thing about you. It's not the truest part of reality. Is it invisible? Oh, that's, that's where we set our minds. And that's what, we, that's what we're to seek. And praise God for his word that we have help to know what's there. We have a hope laid up for us in heaven, Paul said in Colossians 1. For the heavenly minded people. Well, what are these things above and below? We get some idea by the life he describes in a few verses, just from beyond our own passage. Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. Earthly, verse 5, sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. And kind of these, the wrath of God is coming. So that's the fruit of what's earthly, of what's below. Well, how can we tell things that are above? Well, by their fruit. Put on then, verse 12, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if he has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all these, put on love, live in harmony with one another. He's describing the life that, that comes from a mind set on and a, a search for the things that are, that are above. Back to the campsite, it was 1995 in Yosemite Valley, and it was a group of 20 of us. And every morning we'd, we'd study Colossians, and each group had a different passage that they would study, and then each day a different group would sort of share about what they were reflecting on. And, and this was my passage right here with my group. And I remember reading this, first time ever soaked on a text, I'd read a bit, of, a bit of scripture, maybe at that point. I'd be hearing preaching at that point. I recently invited to church. But here I was soaking and things were becoming a little more clear. And I remember thinking, yeah, things below are a total farce. <laughs> I was coming into the idea that sin was sin and sin was bad and sin was the problem and sin was me. And I agreed. And, and things below and things above was one way, one way to capture it. Yeah, things below... Everything I've been throwing my life at and setting my heart to wasn't, wasn't paying off. It was getting me in trouble. I need to seek the things above. And I was ecstatic about Jesus, so I didn't miss him on the page. But no way did I grasp the depths here. And no way, no way do I actually grasp them now. And so it is with all of us. Be encouraged. We're opening our Bibles and trying to stare at a, a doctrine which has depths which we cannot fully explore at the moment, which you cannot fully comprehend, and we just need to admit it, and then meditate on it, pray for help to see it, 
and pray for God's Spirit's work to power us through it. It's right here that we need to be careful. Because apart from our understanding, union with Christ, it is possible for seeking things above and below to become another law. So while we can't understand this fully, we cannot neglect this doctrine at all. We can't afford to. Lest seek things above become another rule. Seek things above and not below become a a program to run, a mantra to repeat, a drill, an exercise, a discipline. And all of this extracted, this is the key, all of this extracted dangerously from the person of Christ who is at the center of the passage. Paul doesn't get to chapter 3 and say, all right, so seek things above and seek things below. Uh, You got what you need. No, he doesn't. I'm sure you saw it. The word if at the beginning of the passage. If then you've been raised with Christ. If you've been raised with Christ. And notice Christ in four verses mentioned five times. And notice with Christ. Of the five times Christ is mentioned, is mentioned four times. Christ who is your life. With Christ. Friends, our new direction, our new direction, our capacity to set our mind on things above is rooted in a new identity. A new identity. So second, you have a new identity. Verses 3 through 4. Let's read the whole passage again. It's not so long, but now with, with ears, ears for the role of Christ in relationship to this mind-setting and search-redirecting command. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and set your minds to things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Christ, who is your life. How beautifully, wonderfully, impossible to imagine, (laughs) personal is that. Christ, who is your life, an all-encompassing Savior for an all-encompassing change. Three precious truths to ponder here. Truths that encompass our past and our, our present and our future and truths that that point the soul, that point the soul heavenward. Truths that, that when we soak in them and grasp them, then the command to seek things above is a reflex. It happens because we know who's above and we know where we're looking. Three precious truths. First, you were raised with him. We have both his death and resurrection represented in the passage. Verse 3 For you have died with Christ. And then verse 1, if then you've been raised with Christ. With Christ. What does that mean when we're speaking of his death and his resurrection? Which was 2,000 years ago. And I know we've got a good span of ages in our congregation. But none of you were there when Christ died and when Christ was raised. In what sense are we with Christ? It's easy language to skip over. It certainly sounds spiritual. 
It's not easy to explain, but that doesn't mean we can skip it. It's not easy to explain like air is not easy to explain. Interesting, friends, the use of the term Christian, which we use and I use and we all use, uh, you won't find a bit of mention of in the New Testament scriptures. And it may have even emerged as a kind of derogatory term, Christians. First Christians did not speak in those terms, and we don't really have that language in our Bibles. So how did they talk? How did the first Christians speak? I want you to turn to your left just two books, to the book of Ephesians, to the book of Ephesians chapter 1, and I want you to listen for a, an impossible to miss, but easy to miss because it's like air, like the air we breathe, repetition of in Christ, of in him. I'm going to read from verse 3 through verse 14. And the purpose here is to hear how the apostle is thinking of and conceiving of what it means to be what we call a Christian. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as, plan, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his great glory. In him. Union with Christ is like the hub of the wheel for every spiritual blessing that is cataloged in this passage. And once you start to see this, you can't unsee it in the Bible. So listen for it and don't brisk over in Christ language. This captures this doctrine of union with Christ. And my point in showing it to you is to show you how pervasive it is. What we're looking at this morning in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, and you can turn back there, is not... It's not a doctrine that just shows up here. But here we have a four-verse unpacking of a doctrine that, is, that pervades all the fabric of Scripture itself. Well, what does it mean? Let's reflect on that question. There are two senses that we could reflect on here. There's a representative sense. There's a representative sense. You're not physically with Jesus in his death and resurrection. But think of a war. 
And if a commander-in-chief and his military win a war with all of its generals and decision-makers, then you have won the war. And we have won the war. And even generations later, later, when a previous generation is all dead, we still, as a people, as a nation, will speak in these terms. We won the war. Were we with them physically? No, but we were with them and they with us and we are together and they, if you will, represented us. And we are together. We don't even feel we need to qualify it. And so we were with Christ in his death and resurrection so that it counts for us. It's victory is our victory. And Jesus is seated where? At the right hand of the Father. He's seated because he's done. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. A place of supremacy and of rule. And he's seated there because he's victorious in his resurrection. Think of basketball, a sport illustration. If you sit on the bench and your team wins, you win. You are with the player who made the game-winning shot. I mean, if I'm at home on my couch, I won. (laughs) You know how it is. We speak in those terms. And in that way, we died with him and were raised with him. In our birth, we were with Adam and he was with us. His guilt and his pollution of sin becomes ours. He's our representative head. And in Christ, in the new birth, Christ is our representative head. Which means that what is ours becomes his. He takes our sin and our guilt. And what is his has become ours. We take his righteousness and his his resurrection, new creation life. And so if you are with Christ in his death, your record of debt was nailed to the cross. And so seek things that are above and not below. Because through Jesus' blood and righteousness, he has opened the sky to you. Things that are above were not perceivable to you. They were not accessible to you. And if you knocked, God would not hear your prayers for your sins, as Isaiah says, have made a separation between you and your God. But through his death, having removed our guilt, and through his resurrection, having now circumcised our hearts, as we've seen in previous weeks, so that we are new creations with new hearts that are alive to God, you now are alive to, you can perceive the things that are above. And so seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, Christ in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We live about five minutes away, and we've got a fence around our backyard. And um, there's a little door out the back of the fence. A lot of hills around here. If you go out that little door at the back of the fence, you've got about an 80-foot drop into a retention pond. Praise God for the fence. I got three kids. I'd be all over that hill, right up at the edge, if I was nine and six. Well, a week or so ago, my son and I decided we're going to go through that door. We're going to go wherever we want. I heard about some little creek and a rope bridge from a neighbor. And I heard some off-roading vehicles mowing around a week before. I heard coyotes at night, but we'll ignore those. So I went through the door, 
and went rummaging around and ducking under things and searching out this wilderness, this unknown place. Found our way to a trail, walked down that trail one direction for a mile, walked back, walked another direction for a mile. We were hunting. We were on an adventure. Well, you see, before we become Christians, before we are in Christ, we've got a fence. All we can see is this world. It's all we want to see in our sin. But God, in making us alive to himself, quickens us. He regenerates us so that we can see what's above and we can venture up into there and rummage around in the treasure which is Christ for we know him and his life is ours and he is our, our life. With Christ, we have died to our sin and with Christ, we are alive to God. And so Paul can say, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave, me, gave himself for me. So there's a representative sense to this union with Jesus. But there's also a relational sense. He loved me and gave himself for me. Christ, who is my life. We live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for us. He lives in us. Jesus is filled with all the fullness of God and we're filled in him and he fills us with himself by his spirit. Remember Jesus said to his disciples before he left, I'm taking off and I'm gone and that's good for you. It's been good that I've been with you, but it'll be better when, I'm, when I go because I'll send the helper, the spirit. And so in as much as we say Christ lives in us, to be more precise, where the Bible expands on that, by his spirit, his very presence is in us. When you're married to someone, it's not a formal matter, but it's a relational and a personal matter. So there's a, re- there's a representative sense to this union with Jesus, that we're with him in his death and resurrection, and there's a relational sense, which brings us to our next precious truth. We've considered what Jesus has done, and now we consider what he's doing Right now, you are hidden in him. You're hidden with him. Verse 3. For you have died and your life is presently hidden with Christ in God. Jesus, my friends, if you're in Christ, is hiding you. Thinking of a child's bedroom, three kinds of hiding I count. Maybe you can count more. The first kind is the hiding under the covers kind. This is the, the hiding the person, the kind where you hide, we hide ourselves from you. And that's not what Jesus does with us. We live in full view of the world. Telling us to seek things above doesn't mean caring less about things below. Christianity is a, a heavenly-minded religion, but it is a religion that minds much earthly business. It is a religion in the clouds, but it is as much down to earth. Christ hides us, but he doesn't hide us away from the world so that we can't be seen. Paul will get down into the weeds of everyday relationships, as we've we've said. The second, there's the, the hiding under the bed hiding. That's where you put things you don't care about. 
Just kick it under the bed. Sometimes we've got to find out what's under the bed. And it just keeps coming. Hiding under the bed kind of hiding. But then there's the hiding under the pillow kind of hiding. And what do you put under your pillow? You put things that are precious to you. Things that you want to keep close. Things that you want to hide for safekeeping. This is what Jesus is doing with us, friends. This is safekeeping hiding. Jesus is a safe keeper, and he keeps you for himself. And in John 17, as he prayed to his father, he prayed about those who would be with him and in him and one with him as he and his father are one. And that, my friends, is an awfully safe place to be hidden, all caught up in the mysterious eternal love of the Trinity. This is under the pillow kind of hiding. And friends, Jesus doesn't sleep on the pillow theme. The Lord does not sleep or slumber. He keeps us. He watches us. He protects us. And he is a great and strong protector. And he's doing this right now. If his death and resurrection was 2,000 years ago and Jesus was your representative in his death and in his resurrection, Jesus is hiding you in himself right now. He is not a jumpstart savior starting you off and leaving you to go. But he is with you and he keeps you. Think of a tree and its roots. What is above the ground is every much a part of the tree as what is below the ground. But what is hidden below the ground is precisely what explains the strength of what is above the ground. The tree with its roots. Rooted, Paul has said in chapter 2, and built up. In love, so we walk in Him. And if you're hidden with Christ, you are safe for all of life and eternity. So seek the invisible things that are above and not the things that intimidate us and cast fear into us and threaten us below. Our lives as Christians, as those who are in Christ and with Christ, are not governed and controlled by the things that happen to us and our response to them in fear or protection or self-promotion. But we are hidden with Christ and safe with him, precious to him. The one who protects you, he hides you. He hideth my soul. What a wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. What a wonderful Savior to me. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock where rivers of pleasure I see. The image of hiding does something else for us. It conveys our security, but it also comforts us in a bit of our insecurity or our uncertainty. It's easy to hear we're in Christ and to disbelieve it, to hidden with Christ and disbelieve it. Why is that? Because we don't look like the kinds of beautiful, privileged, spiritually wealthy people that the Bible tells us that we are. And we certainly aren't treated like the spiritually wealthy people by the world that the Bible tells us we are. And guess what? We're not alone. Rural country Colossian Christians didn't feel like people from above either, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Christ in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and life. Who we really are is hidden from the world. 
and it is in some ways hidden from us. But it won't always be that way. For the hymn continues, When clothed in his brightness, transported I rise to meet him in clouds in the sky. His perfect salvation, his unwavering love, I'll shout with the millions on high. And so to our third precious truth to meditate on. We are hidden with him, but now in the future, you will appear with him. Radiant and bright and beautiful and finished. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him, with him in glory. Saw a social media post this Sunday, this week, a variation on the meme, keep calm and carry on. There are thousands of variations on that meme. This one went, keep calm for he who promised is faithful. And I thought that was right. For God will fulfill this promise. And if the death and resurrection are past events, and if Jesus' hiding of his people in us is a present matter, then his, his return is a future, a future promise. It's a future promise. And if this seems uncompelling, consider that we are all compelled by our visions of the future. A promise that one day a title will appear on your business card, powers our diligence in a present role. Or the promise that one day a degree will appear on our wall, powers our work for a degree. And here's a promise. Jesus is going to appear and you will appear with him. As sure as he will appear, is as sure as you will appear with him. And when you appear with him, you'll be finished, complete, perfect, gorgeous. Consider how John puts it. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he does appear, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And so, friends, as he appears, you will be transformed into his likeness as you behold him. And it is through beholding him incrementally, a little bit at a time, week on week, in this room together, that we are transformed into his likeness. Which is why it's so important that we gather and behold him together. It is a foretaste, a little bit at a time, reaching forward to what will be fully ours when he completely appears. We'll be done struggling with the earthly things we fix our minds on. We'll be done struggling with the things below that we keep searching after. We'll be done struggling to behold all that Jesus is for us in his death and his resurrection and his present reign and in his return for it will be complete and what we saw a little bit we'll see fully and this my friends is how we're to think of ourselves this is how we get our soul compass set right a sufficient savior for an all-encompassing sufficient salvation he has us surrounded even smothered He's taken care of our guilt. He has given us new life. He is hiding us in himself and he promises to return. He is at the middle of our seeking and our setting of our minds. 
And all of that is at the middle of any movement you make in obedience toward God. Here is the power. Here, through union with Jesus, is the power to obey. And friends, the first word in our passage today, don't miss it. If. Which means that if it is not true of you, that you're joined to Jesus in his death and his resurrection. If he is not your, your representative in his death and resurrection, if he is not hiding you right now, then the future for you is not appearing with Jesus in his glory to be transformed into his likeness, but it will be the appearing of Jesus to judge you and to put you away from his presence for all eternity. This is a beautiful passage and it is a bright passage and it is a confidence-giving passage for those who are in Christ. And so if you are not in Christ, remember what we had read from Galatians, that it is by faith in the Son of God that we are crucified with him. And so I plead with you to cast all of your sin on his cross. Count your works as rubbish in achieving this salvation. These great promises are not anything any of us can ever have earned. And they're nothing you can reach yourself. Cast yourself on Jesus by faith and receive the full forgiveness of sins. Be made a new creation in Christ. Be hidden in him. He does all of this for us. And lay hold of the promise of his return when he appears and will appear with him. And find then and only then the mysterious, supernatural, deep, life-changing, life-transformation, life-transforming, indulgence of the flesh stopping. Wow. Power of Jesus in your life. United with Christ, we are powered for life. My friends, we're not the first to find and to treasure and to begin to search out this truth. So I want to close in prayer, but not a prayer that I've written, an old Irish prayer from an Irishman who understood the beauty and the power of union with Jesus. An Irishman who, like us this morning, figured out where the power comes from. As I arise today, may the strength of God pilot me. May the power of God uphold me and the wisdom of God guide me. May the eye of God look before me, the ear of God hear me, the word of God speak for me. And may the hand of God protect me, the way of God lie before me, and the shield of God defend me, and the host of God save me. And may Christ shield me today, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, and Christ when I sit, Christ when I stand, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, and Christ in every ear that hears me. Amen.